This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Welcome to Pit Pass Moto, the show that keeps you up to speed on the latest in motorcycling and brings you the biggest names in the motorcycle industry right to you. I'm Dale Spangler, and this week our guest is the online content editor for RacerX Illustrated, Kellen Brower. Moto America is the official sponsor of Pit Pass Moto. The 2022 Moto America season only has two action-packed rounds remaining. Come see the final round of the King of the Baggers Championship September 9th through the 11th at New Jersey Motorsports Park. Who will be the king, Harley Davidson or Indian? Get your tickets now at MotoAmerica.com. Or you can watch practice, qualifying, and races live on Moto America Live Plus Video On Demand Streaming. Get your tickets and reserve a camping spot today at MotoAmerica.com. And be sure to follow Moto America on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We'd like to give a warm pit pass photo welcome to the online content editor for RacerX Illustrated, Kellen Brower. Kellen, how are you today? How's it been going? And uh, wow, how about the racing yesterday, or actually Saturday? How, how, how It was just absolutely incredible, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm doing very well. And the racing, I mean, really all year has been incredible, but obviously Saturday it was uh it was like another level again with those guys. They uh, they certainly have picked it up again. What we saw at Bud's Creek was kind of, I mean, guess maybe a fluke between the two of them having their moments and their crashes. But we went right back to kind of what we saw, uh, you know, going back to like Washougal, Unadilla, where they got out front, found each other. And boy, oh boy, the racing between the two of them has been insane. And that might have been the peak of it. Yeah, I have to say, like for me, like the thing that stood out to me the most was that first 450 moto and Eli Tomac, like there is, I don't think I've ever seen him ride with so much determination. I almost called it like frantic because he just seemed like he just was riding. I mean, he'd be coming into turns and just like literally like feel like he's going to twist the grip off his YZ450 because he was riding it so hard, like on the limit. And then I thought he kind of like at that moment, I was like, man, I think he's finally broken Chase. And then here we get to the second moto and Chase responds again. So, I mean, it's just... It's just been un- unprecedented for sure. It really has. And uh, to that point with Tomac in the first moto, speaking with him afterwards about it, he he basically just said, like, you have to go. Like, you, there's nothing to lose at that point. Uh, he was going to lose another, um, you know, three points in the championship to Chase. And if Chase goes 1-1 at Ironman, we we know a little bit of his history at Fox Raceway. I think Eli just felt like he he had to win that moto to to at least keep it more in his favor. As we saw, Chase winning in the second moto was a good thing that Tomac won the first moto because then Chase could have rolled into the final where he's very good at with a 1-1 score. 
But uh, yeah, he he worked on finding lines, finding things that worked for him, kind of followed a little bit what Chase was doing in front of him and figured it out and then use it to his advantage to kind of hit the afterburners right when he felt like he needed to there at the end. That's so true because I felt like I noticed that when when Chase got Chase was ahead of him, he really was watching some of the lines that he was using. Like I remember there was one turn in particular, it was like a left-hand turn and Chase was coming in and like hopping off a bump, like over a bunch of bumps and just landing in the turn, railing the turn. And as soon as Eli saw that, he picked up on it. He added that to kind of his repertoire of, of, you know, line selections. And man, he just seemed like he just took it to the next level. And he was like, as, as they pointed out on the television, you know, announcing, like he kept looking back over the jumps, almost like, you know, I didn't know if it was like a psychological thing. You want to look back and say, hey, you know, like you're going to catch me or not. So it was just really such a fascinating battle. To his credit, I thought he did a terrific job of responding once Chase got to him because it's so rare that we see that in in pro motocross where someone's caught from a ways back past and is able to figure it out the way that Eli was. And he, he actually said that it was past the mechanics area where he originally got past where he was going far right-hand side of the track and then trying to apex the double right hand for his corner. And he got high centered on the rut and Chase passed him there in that first moto. That's where he felt like he was losing the most of his time. So the team on the pit board said, you got to switch it up to the left side. He did switch it up to the left side. And that's where he felt like he got all the advantage back that he was losing and then use it to pass Chase there anyway because he went right around the outside of him in that same section. So really smart of him to adapt, figure out the lines that worked for him and an incredible comeback ride to win that one. Yeah, it was so good. I was, I was of course, watching it on my couch, but it was like I was on the edge of my seat. I was like yelling and just like I couldn't believe some of the stuff that was happening. It just felt like I was witnessing history because these guys have just really, I mean, I have to honestly, like we have to feel bad for the best of the rest because, you know, like Plessinger went, quietly in some ways, 3-3, his best ride of the year. And then you got guys like Anderson, Craig, who are just riding really well. But gosh, the, they're so far behind those other guys, you know, and it's not to take anything away. It's just Tomac and Sexton have taken it to that next level. And so it's just been really incredible to, to watch. Yeah, it has. I mean, if you watch it on TV, like you're saying, you you maybe didn't see what Plessinger or Anderson or those guys were doing, but yeah, on the track, I think basically that battle from third through seventh, as it really has most of this year, was was incredible with Dungey trying to pass AP late in the moto and or early in the moto in the second moto, and then Anderson catches him late. And then Craig, after the race, was telling us how bad he wants to beat Dungey in the points. Like it's a, a weird scenario where even though those two guys are are breaking away, everybody else behind them still feels like they have so much more to fight for. And it's kind of made it intriguing to watch. You, like if you're standing on the side of the track, you watch the lead guys go by and they're in their championship fight and then you, you wait 20 seconds and and then there's a whole other like actual real battle going on for third place. It's uh it's really entertaining to watch for sure. Yeah, and it, it, it's, it really like those, not to take anything away from those guys either, like because they're riding so well, they've all elevated their game, but it's just those other two have just somehow separated themselves. Now, of course, on the 250 class, it seems like it's, it's always wild in that class because of all the young riders. They just kind of go for broke for the most part. It's been a you know the Jet Lawrence show. But we've seen this emergence of Joe Shimoda. And I think going into next year, he's he's definitely got to be one of those guys that's a you know a championship contender. You know, what are your thoughts on the on the 250 class? Yeah, with Joe, it's it's been really cool to see his development this year. Speaking to him after the race, I, I asked him a little bit about his his opinions on where he felt like he was going into 2023 with a with a shot at a 250 indoor and outdoor title. And what he said is that he feels like confidence-wise, he's kind of reached that next level where 
it is easier for him to believe that he can get to the front and win these races. And even if you saw in the first moto, he came from so far back and was battling for third before he crashed and ended up in fifth. And then, you know, the second moto, he wins kind of handily. But for him, he's just been so consistent. He keeps landing on the podium in every single moto. That fifth was the first moto all season in the second half that he has finished outside of the top three in a moto. So he... He doesn't always get great starts, but he's great at riding to the front. And then if he does get a great start, he stays up there and can contend for the wins. So it's been cool to see him come into his own. Obviously, Jet has been, I think, kind of on that other level all season long. So once they let him get a little bit too far away, it's been tough for them to fight back into this championship picture. But I think if you're Jet, if you're Joe, and even if you're Hunter Lawrence, I don't think any of those guys can end this season with their head really hung too low because... Really, all of them, I think, to a degree, kind of outperformed any expectations they would have had coming into the season. Definitely. You know, it's funny. I like I haven't been around this like for pretty much my entire life. Like I'm I'm a huge fan of like just watching how a rider, like their demeanor, like I, you can see it in a guy like Joe Shimoda when they have that confidence, you know, like they're bristling with confidence now. It's just, just the way they kind of carry themselves. They have this different swagger to them. And it's like once that rider gets to that level, I feel like they finally truly believe in their mind that they deserve to be up front and leading. Would you, have you kind of noticed that too with him? Oh, 100%. And if you get the chance to ever speak to to Joe if you're walking through the pits or whatever, you'll you'll realize quickly how kind of shy he is. Like he's really a a very reserved person. I think English not being his first language doesn't necessarily help that scenario, but he's gotten a lot better at it over the years. But he is like a really, you know, reserved and thoughtful and, and kind of like tries to take it all in kind of a person. So to see him this year, I feel like step out of his comfort zone at times. And I hate to say ride over his head, but to a degree, get to that level by riding over his head. It's pushed him to a new level that I don't know that he fully believed that he had in him until he was able to start winning and then winning consistently and running up front consistently, getting better starts consistently. And it's built him into this type of person and this type of rider that you can see now walks around the pits with a little bit more of like a, you know, a pep in his step and chin held high and, and really believes that he belongs at the front of this 250 class. Yeah, it's definitely been fun to watch. So one thing, like an, an observation I've been I've been kind of telling people when I have these conversations about moto that I often do. I just love I could talk about it all day. I tell people that I feel like compared to my era, which was the late 80s, early 90s, 90s, today's racers to me are are true athletes now. Like I think that's a that's one of the big differences. Like during my era, like yeah, okay, I ran, you know, I went to the gym. But it wasn't, we weren't doing it in like a kind of scientific, you know, very, we just kind of did what we thought we were supposed to do. And I don't really consider myself to be, I was a, I was a motocross racer, but I wasn't necessarily a, a top athlete in my mind. When I compare them to today's, you know, athletes that are just, they're training so hard, their bodies are on the limit. I mean, would you say to me, that's what's helped elevate this sport to incredible new levels? Yeah, 100%. I think that what we're seeing too is, not only training wise, but a lot of these these kids coming through from an early age are are raised or trained at a training facility to a degree. And I think that helps level the playing field a little bit too, where you don't see a situation where a Carmichael or a Stewart or something comes through where they've been hiding in the shadows or whatever. And they have elite level talent, but they haven't always been racing and riding with these same guys. I think the fact that you have some of these kids, you know, training at MTF or club or GPF or, or whatever, and they're, they're all riding together and they all see what everybody's doing and they know what 
you know, if, if they're finishing fifth at an amateur race, they know how hard they have to train, how hard they have to work and what they have to put in to get to the level of the kids that are winning. So for sure, training wise, these guys are, are all in incredible shape. And I think we're going to see it this weekend at Fox Raceway because it's going to be really, really hot for this finale. So we're going to see who at the 12th round of the championship when the dog days of summer are coming to a close really still has it. But uh, incredible shape and definitely makes that racing a bit closer, I think. That should be interesting because uh, here, in, here in Boise, where I'm located, we've had some record number of days above 100 degrees. So that's going to be, I, I think for the most part, the series has been lucky this year that we haven't gotten more of those because you know, it's getting to the point where some of these these triple digit days. I mean, it's going to be rough on racers if we if we ever have to, you know, go up against one of those. And luckily, there's not so much humidity on the West Coast, so I, I think we'll probably be okay. But it's still going to be make the final that much tougher. But I also like with that in mind, I think it really to kind of circle back on what we were just talking about with the training. I also feel like there's a much bigger focus on mental strength and you know mental health, even for that matter, with these athletes. Whereas Again, to go back to my era, like we didn't even really think about that. You know, it's just, you know, maybe we read some books, things like that, got some inspiration, but there really wasn't a, a huge focus on 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 mental strength and, and training. No, and and uh, these guys definitely are taking steps every week. I feel like to you know clear their head, find something that helps them. You know, not always think about their bikes and motos so that they get grinded to a halt in that way, and it frees them up. Like this. I think I've interviewed Chase Sexton on a Friday this year, maybe, you know, six, seven times. And every single time he wants to talk about golf. Like he wants to talk about something that's not what he's, you know, trying to win a championship in because to him, it, it frees his, his mind a little bit and, and takes the pressure off of having to think about this championship and focus in on this championship. And then after the race, we're strolling through the pits at like 8 p.m. It's three hours after the moto and, and Eli Tomac is by his hauler playing cornhole with a bunch of fans. So again, these guys are just trying to remain loose and have a good time and, and enjoy the moment and not stress too much about the situations that they're in. And I think that that is definitely a key part into why you're seeing so much more of these guys late into their 20s have you know tremendous seasons and longer careers and not be as burnt out by the schedule as we we have seen in the past with, with Villapoto or with Carmichael retiring at 26. Like these guys have figured out ways to stretch their careers into new lengths, I think. Yeah, and I think probably that goes back to the fitness, but it, it, you're right. We have seen this sort of shift a little bit to champions, you know, going later into their, you know, age, age-wise, age into their 30s in a lot of cases, whereas in the past, like maybe, you know, 26 was like, if you tap out then, you know, you're, you're, you're still probably close to the end of your career. But now I feel like with this new level of fitness, New riding techniques, which that was something else I wanted to talk about. But the way that these guys are riding now, I feel like they've taken the scrub, they've built upon it, they've elevated it to a new level. And now you've got the guys standing up all the way through rutted turns. I'm like, I, I just can't even fathom how that works. Like they're going so fast now that I feel like everything has just been elevated to that next level. Absolutely. The technique is one of those things that I try to harp on as much as I can too, because some of the things that we're seeing these guys do, it is stuff that yeah, you know, maybe Stewart was doing it at his peak and and, and Ricky obviously was really talented as well. And, and Villapoto and Dungey, they're all very talented guys. But like you're saying, with the standing up all the way through a corner, a deep rutted corner, the way that they are and, and both Tomac and Sexton doing that stuff every single lap for 30 minutes and not making a single mistake. Like this little almost tip over that I saw from Tomac in the, the second moto when he caught Chase was like kind of the first real... I think mistake I've seen Tomac make 
almost all year. It's been incredible how on point he's been, even pushing to this level that they haven't been pushing beyond, I guess, the level of a, of a boundary that they have where they're still within themselves and using these new techniques that they've adopted to ride to the level that they are consistently and not make those huge mistakes. Yeah, I just honestly can't even imagine the amount of like mental focus it takes to be able to do that for 30 plus two laps, you know, because it's just like you're saying, like to do it once is one thing, but to just keep doing it lap after lap in multiple turns, not pick your feet up off the pegs. I mean, again, it's just like this, it's almost like gravity defying, you know, like watching it. It is. It really is. It's incredible. So that's uh, another thing I I wanted to to bring up uh, with you is and talk about a little bit is I think. This guest announcer scenario with with the television package has been awesome. Like I, I've enjoyed it personally, having guys like Jeff Emig, James Stewart, Clark Glover in there. They're just bringing such unique. Each one of them has their own unique perspective. But I love hearing all the little things that they see that maybe like the average person wouldn't see. You know, from having been around it so long. When Stewart was on for Bud's Creek, you know, he was he was just noticing little things with the riders, things they were doing, jumping. Uh, even the body language, like they just seem so intuitive with being able to pick up signs like that with riders when they're announcing. So it's been really fun from that perspective. It really has. And it's, you know, I obviously work closely with Jason Wygant, so I get to hear a little bit more maybe beyond what you guys see on TV every week. And one thing that he's talked about that he's really liked is that he, like these guys are doing a, a better job than maybe you would have expected for having no TV experience in the past. Like for Stu and and for... I guess McGrath to a degree and a couple guys like that, they have always been on the other side of it. They've always been guys that were being interviewed or just having short media blips or something like that. But to do four and a half, five hours of TV is a different story. And they're all doing, I think, a a terrific job of being able to constantly talk about new topics and, and bring interesting topics to the forefront that we don't always hear. You know, it can get a little bit repetitive. Like when we had Jeff Emig back for Unadilla, I believe, like he's very good and he's very articulate as well. But then you kind of started to be like, okay, I've I've heard Jeff bring that exact topic up, you know, many, many times before. And so it's refreshing, of course, to have, you know, Stuart, like you say, mention the things that he was talking about with technique. Brock Glover is able to, I think, break it down a little bit better from even like a tire's perspective, being with Dunlop and, you know, say what's good about the scoop tire or the knobby tire or anything like that. The only disappointment I've had with the rotating analysts this year is that we were supposed to have more of them. We were supposed to have Cian Cerullo pa- this past weekend, but unfortunately, he was he was ill. We were supposed to have Damon Bradshaw at High Point, and he was also not able to make it because he was sick. So I wish we had more of it, honestly, because it's been so awesome to have these talented riders be able to dissect the racetrack for us fans at home a little bit better. Yeah, you think that's something they'll maybe potentially consider carrying over into 2023 series as well? Unfortunately, I don't believe so. I'm not the right person to ask, but I think because of the new TV package that they're going to have for 2023, they want to have some consistency in there. This is more of a, they're on MAV for one year. MAV has a little bit more freedom to kind of be loose and playful with that. So I think, you know, you if you go back to an NBC or a Fox or something like that, they want consistent, reliable analysts to be able to report on the sport and not have a wild card situation because I think that was one of the the worries this year is that you'd have like Ryan Villapoto who has been a little bit loose since he retired drop maybe a word he shouldn't or things like that. So I think they just want that consistency in the future. So what do you think about uh, what were your impressions of some of the the rookies that came in this weekend like Hayden Deegan and and Gavin Towers? Like what are, what are your thoughts? I feel like this 250 class is just 
there is so much talent coming up right now and so much new talent coming in that I'm just like going, next year is going to be, I feel like it's just going to be a, a wide open. With Hayden, obviously, there's so much hype behind him and so much, uh, you know, I think publicity and stuff surrounding it. So it was it was unique from my perspective to watch it this weekend because this is, I guess, like my first time being a member of the media that I saw one of these super, super highly touted kids come through. Like, yes, Ryder Francesco also turned pro this year. But by the time he got to the pros, I think everyone was kind of like, yeah, okay, Ryder D, what's he going to do? I think with Hayden Deegan, this is your first like true B-class kid with a lot of publicity behind him and people thinking he can like win in his debut showing up. So it was uh, exciting to see it because then you get like a real taste of where he is. He says that he trains at the goat farm with Levi Kitchen and Justin Cooper and he can match their pace and he does 30s with them no problem. But it's a whole different story to get on a national track with super long ruts and breaking bumps everywhere. I think he did really well personally. I think that uh, unfortunately the crash was the big storyline in the first motor. I don't know why he elected to try to hop over the wall jump like he did, but uh, that one was brutal. Uh, but up until that point, he started 16th. He'd worked his way forward. He made some good passes. He was just cruising along at 11th. He was kind of all by himself once he got there. So maybe he was trying to figure stuff out to gain time. But I think he did totally fine. The second moto, he crashed in the third corner, picked his bike up I, I, maybe a minute behind everybody because he was down for a long time, limping back to his bike and just kept charging the whole moto and got 24th. Like I think even though the results are terrible, that's fantastic to see that He's not there to, you know, just be this publicity kid. Like he's there to learn, soak up as much information as he can, try hard all the way to the flag, like finish the moto when he can. I think he would have tried to finish the first moto if he could have, but I heard a shock blew up when he went over the bars that hard. So I think he did pretty well. The unfortunate thing for Towers this weekend that we didn't know about coming in is he'd actually injured his knee during the week. And so when he went out for the first moto, I think it was like the second lap, he went through the same jump that Deegan crashed on and he felt his knee pop and he's getting an MRI today. So we didn't really get to see a true scope of what what he's able to do. But I think for both of them, it's just good that they were able to, before the season's done, get their feet wet, feel it out a little bit. I think both of them are going to do futures again next year in Supercross. So it's just a good experience you know, for them to learn and, and pick up and, and see what they actually do need to work on moving forward. Yep, as everyone says, you, you know, you just you can't ever really truly emulate racing, and so you know, getting that that time on the track is going to pay down the road and next year. So, so speaking of rookies, though, there was also a scouting moto combine at Ironman, which was won by another kind of upcoming phenom, um, Chance Hymas, and Tim Ferry's son Evan Ferry finished second. So we've got even more of these talented riders coming up. In your mind, uh, how you know? Tell us a little bit about what you think of the Scouting Moto Combine and, and the whole concept and and what it means for the development of you know, future pro riders in, in U.S. motocross. I think they're they're really uh, helpful for any level of these kids that come through. I think for Hymas, obviously, he's got a factory deal lined up, so it's it's not like he needs to do this to prove anything. He's going to be a pro eventually. But for him, it's a good experience to get out there. And, and just like it was for Deegan and Towers on the pro track, these guys race the same track. So they, they race Friday. It's not Saturday. It's not as rutted up as a, a pro national, but they race the same track. They have a crowd there to watch them. They get to soak in the experience. And then behind, behind that, they, they train with a, a former pro motocross athlete. They, they get nutrition help. They get media training. They get a full schedule to show them like, here is how this is done during the day, which is so much different than any amateur national because 
you know, these kids, like even at Loretta's, you, you go out there, you go into staging, you pick your gate, you do your moto and you come back and you sit in the tent for four or five hours. That, that's not what these guys do out there. They're out there learning stuff all day long, speaking with their coaches, trying to dissect the racetrack better and figure it out. And it's, it's really, I think, been beneficial for a lot of these kids to, even if they're not, you know, learning a ton in terms of race pace or picking up much of what Chad Reed's telling them about how to hit a corner or something like that, they're at least figuring it out that they have work to do before they turn pro. This isn't just, you know, you walk onto the pro scene and you're going to win your first moto out there. You're probably going to get 15th or you're going to go over the bars like Brian or uh, like Hayden Deegan did. And you're going to have to pick yourself back up and, and figure it out again. So it's been cool to watch the development of these kids. I've been to three of the four combines I'm going this weekend. There's another one at, at Fox Raceway. And all of them at the end of the day, despite being exhausted because it's the first time they've done two 25-minute motos, they all seem to always have a smile on and feel like they walked away with a lot more information than they had when they walked in. That's such a great point because I tell people that all the time that like I think from the outside looking in, they don't realize that you know a huge part of like racing one of those pro nationals is recovery. Like you have to do it twice. You only have like I think it's a little over an hour between the first and the second moto. So as soon as they're coming off the bike, you know, the recovery process is already beginning. They're handing them you know, their recovery drink and they're getting food in them or whatever that, whatever their routine is. But I think that's just easily overlooked. And so this, you know, this moto combine, they're able to experience that and go, wow, now I know what to expect of a pro race day because it's a lot and I need to be prepared for my recovery process and, you know, all of that stuff. So I think it's definitely going to, it makes sense that it, that it, it helps eliminate some of the surprise that can cause so much anxiety for these young racers. Yeah, and to that point about the recovery time, like I, I talked to Ryan Holiday, the manager of Team Green, after the Redbud Combine, and he told me a funny story about when they were at Ironman for the the very very first one last year. You know, he had Chance Hymas still with Team Green at that point, and Ryder DeFrancesco under the tent, and they they finished up the first moto. And these combines up until this past weekend had been structured that they had about two hours between motos. The first moto usually was at about one fifteen. The second moto was about. 415 and obviously they pull off the track at you know 145 almost two ish so they have a little over two hours to recover so at the, uh, the very first Ironman one they pull off the track is a pretty hot one Ryder D and uh, and Hymas are laying under the tent and maybe 25 30 minutes goes by and Ryan Holiday says all right stand up we're getting ready to go to the line again because that's how it is in pro motocross, these guys only have that hour window from when their moto ends to rest, recover, try to get some sort of electrolytes or nutrition back in them, and then go back down to the line because staging area is at 20 minutes before the moto coming up. So you don't have much time to recover. You don't have time to sit back and debrief and rest and get yourself back to a level that you feel comfortable with to go back to the line. A lot of these guys sometimes go back to the line and they they barely have had anything to do with debriefing or resting. So it was eye-opening because Holiday was like, these guys had no idea how fast that turnaround time was until I told them, stand up, we're going back to the line. Even though at that time, they weren't really going to the line, but Holiday's like, this is what you got to do if you're going to race pro motocross. Yeah, that's such a cool, cool story to hear that because yeah, I truly believe that's just something that's really, you know, often overlooked unless you've kind of experienced it or understand what goes down there. So let's change direction a little bit. I want to ask you a little bit about your role as the online content editor at RaceRex. So what what are your primary duties there? And you know what's an average day look like for you? I know you've been doing some of these uh, like video, you're doing the first looks, I think they're called race examination and then save of the day on the RaceRex YouTube channel. And 
they've been really cool and super informative. So tell me about that and your your kind of your day-to-day role there at RacerX. Yeah, so my day-to-day role really consists of just making sure that we are as up-to-date and as fluid with getting content posted to the website. You know, we have probably about 25, 30 features that we have to get on the website every single week. And to a degree, we try to make sure that they're spread out fairly evenly. So it's not like you're you're coming on Monday and reading nine things and you're coming on Wednesday and reading two. We want to make sure that if you're coming to the website on Monday, you're getting as much fresh information as you could if you come on Wednesday or Thursday or whatever. So we really try hard to schedule things out and make things you know much more fluid for the readers. On my personal side of things, you know, I do a lot with trying to interview riders and athletes at the races. So we have content to flow throughout the week. And then if we don't have something that we we need, you know, we'll go to team members or something like that, get the riders' information, call them up, ask some questions, make sure we have more interview content and storylines to break or talk about. And then the video side of thing, that was more or less why I was brought in at RaceRex in the first place, because I have a bit of a background with growing a, a YouTube fan base and um they wanted to grow their YouTube presence and see where they were missing out on. So that's why we've tried to push forward with some of these ideas. Um, you know, the first look videos have kind of always been there, but they're more press day videos. So now we've turned them into a show almost where we interview athletes and we talk about the races a little bit. Race examination was just, we're all sitting around on a Monday one day and decided, you know, like what happened from the race? Like what what are things we could talk about that no one noticed? And that was you know, our idea of how can we show this to the fans to say like, man, you guys probably missed, uh, you know, Ken Roxon pulling off his tear-offs off on a jump or something like that. But we'll go back and find the footage and try to break that down. And uh, yeah, we're just trying to grow a presence on all platforms, whether it's our, our website, which has always been really great. YouTube, we're trying to grow the presence there. We're trying to help out our social media team, get more and more content to their side. By the time we get to Thursday or Friday, we're on a plane and back to another race again. So kind of like a, a never-ending little you know, circus of running around, getting stuff posted and edited and such. But it's fun. It, I wouldn't change it for the world, you know? Yeah, no, I've noticed you guys have done just have done such a great job of just being consistent. Like there's it's consistently there week in and week out, those same features where people start to build that, you know, they look forward to them, you know? So I think you've done, you know, kudos to you guys for doing a great job on that. Now, something else I've noticed that you do, and I wasn't sure if this was kind of a side hustle for you, but you have this Start Your Systems, which you describe as a media organization centered around gaming and entertainment with the motorsports, uh, within the motorsports discipline. So tell us about that, because I think it's interesting. I've seen this kind of huge uh, surge in this online gaming, and you're kind of almost replicating in some cases, the race series as they're going on. So yeah, maybe, maybe share a little bit about you know what, what you have going on there. Yeah, so Star Your Systems was a... It still is a side project, but it was definitely a side project when I started it. Me and a friend started it back in 2014. I had previously been with Verb Moto and they had a gaming channel on their YouTube platforms as well. And I was running that. They decided they were going to pull funds from it for 2015 moving forward. So I was like, you know... I've kind of already got all of the equipment and stuff set up to be able to do this on my own. So me and a friend came together. We started Start Your Systems Up at the end of 2014. Basically, we just tried to do our best to give as much exposure to these motocross and two-degree motorsports video games that are on the market. You know, right now with with, uh, dirt bikes specifically stuff, there's two different simulation video games that you can play that are dirt bike related. There are three different dirt bike arcade games you can play with the MXGP series, the Monster Energy Supercross series, or now MX Resident ATV Legends that just came out. 
And there's so much stuff that if, unless you're, you know, actively following all this stuff, it's hard to figure out what all of these games are, how to play them, you know, what is important about them or what's not. So we really tried to be, I guess, kind of that middle ground or that news outlet, I guess, to show people, here's how you play these games. Here's some things you can get involved with. And um, I'd always been part of the broadcast team with some of these events like you were talking about. We have a, a pro series and a mech simulator that our team has broadcasted since we started back in 2014. Lately, we've been running some esports teams that compete in that game and a couple other games. And then this past couple of years, I took on another role with uh, Feld Entertainment, actually, where the ESX Esports Championship and Monster Energy Supercross, they also want me to be the lead broadcaster on that. So it's just kind of all culminated into more opportunities even working at RacerX wouldn't have happened if I didn't do this little side project where we're just trying to get information out about these video games and, and show people that there's fun to be had in the motocross gaming realm. And, and there's a lot of uh, really cool people and storylines in these games that you maybe wouldn't know about unless you know you looked a little bit harder. Such a good time right now to be a fan of the sport of motocross because I feel like there's just so much media out there, videos, and then now we've got this esports element. And so... Super fun. But Kellen, it's been fun talking Moto with you today. I, I really appreciate your time. So um, in these last few minutes, I just wanted to, if you want to take a little bit of time and uh, if there's some websites or social media handles you'd like to call some attention to, now would be the time to share those with our listeners. Yeah, absolutely. Just be sure to visit us at racetracksonline.com. That's where we have our recurring role of anything and everything you need to know about Obviously, right now with Lucas Oil Pro Motocross, but we have MXGP coverage. We have Monster Energy Supercross coverage, Motocross of Nations. You name it, we're, we're usually there covering it. So be sure to, to visit there. And as well, startyoursystems.com is you know my, my little side project there that we upload stuff about gaming videos and content and, and try to do some entertaining stuff for you folks that uh, are interested in that discipline in the motorsports realm. But that's where we're at. If you guys want to follow us, be sure to head over there and, and check us out. Well, that's awesome. Well, keep up the great work, Kellen. And uh, again, we appreciate your time today. Yes, sir. Thank you. Thanks again to our guests for being with us today. And thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to follow us on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. If you have a moment, please rate and review us. We really appreciate it. Make sure you're also following us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and visit pitpassmoto.com where you can check out our blog and our brand new store where you can get your Pit Pass swag. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcasts. A special thank you to Tommy Boy Halverson, producer Leah Longbreak, and audio engineer Eric Coltnow. I'm Dale Spangler. And I'm Dave Selecki. See you next week on Pit Pass Moto. I'm Bruce Martin, host of Pit Pass Indy. Each week, I go behind the scenes of the NTT IndyCar Series and introduce our listeners to the biggest stars of IndyCar, which features the Indianapolis 500 as its cornerstone event. The men and women that compete in IndyCar may be the bravest athletes in all of sport as danger lurks around every corner. They are able to look danger in the eye without flinching. 
That is why the NTT IndyCar Series features the best racing on the planet. Join me every week as we talk to the stars of IndyCar, including the legends of the Indianapolis 500 on Pit Pass Indy from Evergreen Podcast. 